0: Welcome this morning. Good to have you all with us. Some visiting for maybe the first or second time. And it's uh, also good to greet those of you who are online this morning. Uh, I wanted just to start off uh, kind of referring to some of the comments that that Andy made. um, Appreciated his focus on the Lord Jesus. But about people outside these walls, Uh, there are so many people who are living without hope, right in our communities, right in our towns. And perhaps if you drove here this morning, regardless of which direction you came from, you saw evidence of that hopelessness. There is a crisis, an epidemic of drug addiction, of mental health issues, of homelessness in our community, and... And I don't have an easy answer for that, although what I do know is that if they are living their life apart from a relationship with God the Father in Christ, they are in crisis. And also for those of you who maybe have a warm home to live in, and you have a job where you can earn a living, if you are living outside of a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, you also are living in crisis, so uh, there's no hope, no true hope, outside the hope that we find in Christ. In Romans 5, uh, Scripture says that God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning we're going to continue our our encountering Jesus series. We'll be looking primarily at Luke chapter 23. Uh, this week and next, we will look at far and away the most significant event in history. Uh, you can line up all the wars, continental and oceanic discoveries, medical breakthroughs, kingdom and regime changes, inventions, world events of any nature. Line them all up. They pale in comparison to the importance of the event we are considering Today and next week on Easter Sunday. This coming Friday, we recognize that it is Good Friday. The passion of the Lord Jesus, his unconditional love on display, his choice to die on a cross. So I I confess that being up here, speaking about the events leading up to the cross, brings a certain amount of trepidation. This is a real, in a real sense, hallowed ground. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is so great in scope and significance that comprehending what happened 2,000 years ago brings awe and reverence. And I hope where you're seated today you have just a sense of that. The very best approach that we can take in the telling of this story is to turn to Scripture. We believe the words of John, his disciple, when he writes in his gospel, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I was given the chapter of, of 23 in Luke, and it's a big portion, so we're going to do an introduction, the first 32 verses or so, and then we're going to dive into the text where Christ begins his path to Golgotha to die on the cross um, let's summarize the hours just before Jesus was led away in the first uh, 30 verses or so of, of Luke we won't read the text but, but uh, stay with me after his arrest uh, Jewish leaders brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate Pilate was a significant politician he was the governor of Judea He's an important politician and he interrogates Christ and finds him innocent. And so he sends Jesus off to his political opponent, Herod, to maybe make the difficult decision of whether he's guilty or innocent. Herod, if you recall from the, from the story, finds no fault in him. Sends him back to Pilate. Three times in Luke chapter 23, Pilate says Jesus is innocent. 23, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. 23, 14, to the Jewish leaders, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then finally, in 23, verse 22 of Luke, after cries from the mob and from the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus, he says, I find in him no guilt deserving death. So Pilate speaks with Jesus one more time, Scripture says. Pilate desires to release him, but the Jewish leaders and the mob persist. Pilate finally, in order to avoid a riot, decides to deliver our Savior over to be crucified. Jesus earlier, we read in earlier chapters, shortly after his arrest had already been severely beaten. In the Roman tradition, additionally, a brutal whipping or scourging came right before the actual crucifixion. We see this in Mark's Gospel account, 15, verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd and having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him up to be crucified. Roman flogging was a horrifically cruel punishment. History tells us that those who were condemned were often tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of metal and bone. The beating literally tore up the victim. The flogging itself was sometimes fatal. It was used to weaken the condemned so that it would quicken the death during crucifixion. After these beatings and and whippings, we see in Luke chapter 23 that Jesus is too physically weak to carry his own cross. So they commissioned Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. And that brings us to our text. But just before we read it, there's two critical truths that lay some groundwork for us. First off, in our text in Luke, it says that Pilate decided to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. But this decision was made before the creation of the world. God the Father chose Jesus the Son to redeem sinners before He created the world. Ephesians 1 4 says, "...even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him." In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's initiative for redeeming the believer from sin and death through his son's sacrifice was not whimsical or a newly designed idea. God was not taken by surprise when we sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden. And God the Father was not taken by surprise when God the Son was sent up to be crucified. It was his predetermined plan. The Father chose Jesus the Son to redeem sinners by dying for them. And he made this decision before the world was even created. Secondly, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sin. There was no other option. No one else is worthy to carry out God's plan for salvation. Not only was he seen as innocent between, or before Pilate and Herod, but most importantly, he was seen as perfectly innocent before God the Father. Hebrews 4 says, Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Hebrews 9, he offered himself without blemish to God, 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So many more scriptures we could recall expressing his perfect innocence. No sin found in him, no wrong that he had done. He was righteous, pure, good, and holy in every way. And his death was predetermined before the foundation of the world. So with these uh, truths in mind, join me in, in taking this look at our Savior's moments leading up to his death on the cross. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. We're going to read uh, beginning in verse 33 and through verse 49. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The Gospels do not give a detailed count of the actual crucifixion or being nailed to the cross and lifted up. But here in this account, soon after he is lifted up on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. These are the first words recorded of Jesus after he is nailed to the cross. He holds no malice, no anger, no self-pity. His first response is compassion for those who would carry out his punishment. The soldiers, the Jewish leaders in the mob that celebrate his sentence of death, they do not know or believe that the Lord Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. In their minds, he was a rebel. Counter to the culture, a problem for society and a man to be rid of. Our Savior was punished between two common criminals. A thief on his right and another on his left. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus and his death would be numbered with the transgressors. Our innocent Lord hung on a cross between two common thieves. The Religious leaders mocked him. For them, this was a triumphant day, finally rid of the one who condemned their hypocrisy. The soldiers also, after dividing his garments for keepsakes of the occasion, they mocked him. Verse 36 says that they gave him some of their sour wine, but it was doubtful at this point that this was an act of mercy in the midst of their taunting and mocking. Scripture says that an inscription Over him read, this is the king of the Jews. It was customary for the charge of the condemned to uh, have their crime prominently displayed above them. The posted heading, King of the Jews, justified the Roman condemnation. Jesus was the condemned, rebellious Jewish king against Roman rule. But in John's gospel account, we read that the chief Jewish priest protested the inscription, Jesus was not seen as their king. But for us who know him, we recognize him as Lord Jesus, the eternal king. Not only our Lord and king, but as scripture says, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. So, ironically, the inscription, this inscription posted above his head, while limited in scope it's accurate king of the jews verse 39 we shift to the criminals on either side of jesus who are suffering with him knowing that they are near death no hope for this life they've been caught and sentenced to to die for their own crimes but two different responses one of the criminals joined others in mocking him. If you were the Christ, save yourself and us. But the second thief rebukes the first. Recognizing that Jesus was innocent. He says a short time before his own last breath, he asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The statement acknowledges that The second thief knew that the man in the middle cross was who he said he was. The Son of God with power over sin and death. This believing criminal had no opportunity to be baptized, no opportunity to take communion, no last rites even. Just the Son of God saying, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief's admission of his own guilt and willingness to acknowledge Christ and place his trust in Him saved him for eternity. This scene and other promises from Scripture give us assurance that when we are absent from our body in death, if we have confessed our own guilt and acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior, we will be present with Him in eternal life. Absent from the body, if you know Him, present with the Lord. Second Corinthians five says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This body of ours is a temporary residence. When we place our trust in the Lord Jesus, we have assurance that we will go to be with him in our permanent home. When the Apostle Paul speaks of his own impending death while in prison, he writes to the Philippians, I am hard-pressed between the two, speaking of living or dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Just as Christ assured the believing thief that he would join him in paradise, he gives us assurance that if we trust him and if we follow him, we will be present with him. A promise that brings us solid hope and assurance. Yet, Scripture says, while here, Scripture challenges us to walk worthy of His calling. To walk worthy of the salvation freely given to us as representatives of Christ and as ambassadors for Him. Paul also said, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Do you identify with the first thief? not believing, perhaps even mocking what Christ did for you? Or are you like the second thief, believing that Christ is the Son of God and that He died for you? Jesus spoke other words while on the cross, recorded in the other three Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and John's accounts, there's more light shed on what Christ was thinking and what He said before His death. When a person close to us Comes to the end of life, we pay close attention to what they have to say. Many of you have experienced this with loved ones. In the final weeks, with my own father on earth, this didn't happen when I reviewed this, but here goes. I leaned in hard to understand what was on his mind at the end. I savored those words. They were the most important ones for him to communicate when he came to the end of his life. Some of those words were thoughts of reconciliation. He wanted to make sure that there were no open offenses with his children or with those closest to him. Some of Dad's words were humorous. I saw him in his final week still reviewing his Greek and Hebrew. I asked him about it. He said, who knows who I may meet in heaven that I might want to talk to in their language? <laughs> From a very practical standpoint, Dad was already anticipating what paradise with Christ might be like. Dad also talked of the profound feeling of having anxiety for the process of dying, not fearing death itself. He was ready to meet the Lord. His last words carried weight. So it is with Jesus' last words. We do well to lean in hard to His last words on the cross. Keep your bookmark in Luke 23, for those of you who have the text. And turn with me to the Gospel of John, where we'll just look briefly at some of Christ's other last thoughts. John 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother, Jesus is on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Even in the midst of his pain and despair, he had compassion for the physical needs of his mother. Jesus wanted his disciple John to look out for his mother. She was most likely a widow at this point in her life. This shows his affection for those around him, his concern for daily needs, even when experiencing his own deep agony. Also in John's account, 19 verse 28, knowing the end was near to fulfill the scripture, he says, I thirst This is recorded for us. So, they gave him sour wine. In a reference to Psalm 69, this was not an act of mercy. The sour wine was an act of reproach. This statement near the end reminds us of his humanity. Jesus, while fully God, was also fully man. As a man, he experienced physical pain and suffering. His body had need for nourishment, just like you and I do. In the Matthew 27 and Mark 15 accounts at this point, Jesus says aloud to God the Father, and Andy referenced this from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? An indication that as he bore the sin of mankind on himself on the cross, the Father turned away to the degree that he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us that he became sin for us. The physical punishment he experienced was great, but the weight of our sin he took was even greater. Experiencing the full judgment of God for the sin of the world was a profoundly difficult moment for our Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turn back to me to uh, our text in Luke 23. Verse 44 and 45, it says, It was now about the sixth hour, or around noon, during the middle of the day. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The darkness over the whole land was literal near the time of his death. The sun's light failed for three hours in the middle of the day. Son of God, Jesus, fully man, fully God, is coming to the very end of his physical life. A life of perfection, compassion, wisdom, and grace. God the Father, creator of the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, he shut it down for three hours Towards the end of Christ's death. Some would suggest that the darkness came as a sign of the Father's displeasure and judgment upon humanity for crucifying His Son. You recall the ninth plague that the Lord brought on Egypt during the days of Moses was pitch, blackness for three days, judgment. Darkness also represents lament or a passionate expression of sorrow and grief. As our Savior died, darkness came over the land. Additionally significant is the curtain of the temple, torn in two. Herod built and established an impressive temple for the Jews during the time of Jesus. The curtain in the temple separated the holy place from the most holy place. Old Testament law maintained that no one, was allowed to enter through the curtain into the most holy place except the high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. This massive curtain, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, was torn in two at the time of Jesus' death, signifying, signifying the removal of the separation between God and people. All of us, not just the high priest once a year, but all of us, Have open access to God the Father. Not through a curtain in a temple, but through the person and sacrificial death of His only Son, Jesus Christ. We come to the Father freely in Jesus' name and by His sacrifice. Near the very end, in Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Interestingly, in John's account of this moment, after Jesus had received the sour wine, Christ is heard also saying, it is finished. He has done it. And he bowed his head and voluntarily gave up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. Jesus laid down his life. On his own initiative. He said back in John 10. I lay down my life. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. What he had come to do. He completed. God's love. Illustrated by sending his only son. To die on a cross for our sin. Finished. Completed. Nothing else required. We should heed this statement. It. Is finished. It means that when we accept the sacrifice of Christ and the cross, we've experienced God's full satisfaction of payment for our sin. There's nothing we can add. Hebrews 9 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured an everlasting salvation. A transaction that took place once and for all, for all time. Hebrews 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. The sitting down at the right hand of God, the Father signifies that the sacrificial work is done. It is finished. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of the reconciliation We can have with God the Father that comes only from Christ. He writes, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When the second criminal stands before God, he is not seen as a petty, selfish, greedy thief. His sin was put on the Lord Jesus. And the believing thief is seen as righteous. This criminal is seen as righteous because God the Father sees the righteousness of His Son. We don't stand before God the Father on the merit of our own goodness, our own good deeds, our own good works. We stand before God on the merit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty in full. These last few verses of our text We see some of the other responses of those who are watching. The Roman centurion, means he's a leader of a hundred men, who witnessed these events, praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. He perhaps had been one of the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus early on, but after experiencing three hours of midday darkness, the earth quaking and Jesus' final words, He could only respond with praise and acknowledgement of Jesus' innocence. Others who watched responded as well. Some returned home beating their breasts, a sign that they too realized a great miscarriage of justice had occurred and an innocent man had been killed. Many witnessed these events. Many heard the final words of Jesus. And as we quoted from John 20:31 in the beginning this morning, I want to read those again. these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. He died for you. Simply place your trust in him and follow him. Accept his sacrifice on the cross for your sin. We've all fallen short of God's standard, but Christ Jesus paid the debt that we could never pay. So in closing this morning, I just want to acknowledge that we end this morning's service with the description of his sacrificial death. But the story's not completed yet. Next week, we will see the significance of what happens next. His victory for us over sin and death. So next week come back for the rest of the story. I want to pray. But before I do, I I just want to, to mention that if if you're you're hearing about the good news of Jesus' death on your behalf and it's resonating for you like maybe it hasn't in the past we, we don't coerce folks to follow Jesus, that's business between you and God and the Holy Spirit but if, if you're thinking today that you have some questions about what Christ did for you we don't want you to hesitate don't go out of the building without doing your business with the Lord and let someone know if that's where you are today let someone know and for the rest of you who know him, I hope that you're encouraged anew by what he accomplished for you on the cross. I'm, I'm going to pray, and, and Dan and the others are going to come up and, and lead us in a final, final song. So pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we approach this reading of your sons going to the cross with a bit of solemnness knowing what great pain and agony he went through to accomplish for us what you asked him to do, willingly. So, Father, we're, we're thankful for him. We're, we're thankful for salvation that comes through his death on the cross. We're thankful that you rose him again from the dead, giving us that victory. But, Father, this morning we, we pray that you might do a real work in the life of anyone here who may not yet have made that decision like the thief did on the cross to acknowledge their own guilt and place their trust in the man on the middle cross. We're thankful for Him. We praise and we worship Him. Might His life impact our own. In Jesus' name.